You can look at that and be like, how come they're getting away with it? And I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. that There's a definite sense in which it's the case, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. When white people see black people enjoying themselves, they really get scared, huh? Yo, what up? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we can bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we're going to wade into the sticky waters of statue iconoclasm. Ripping down statues and replacing, or I don't know what, how exactly we're going to frame it, but we're going to talk about the statue shit that's going on. Yeah, dude? Iconoclasm is a great word. I'm glad you used it. It's the, the, the thing that keeps bouncing around in my head. And because of my Protestant past, I'm so comfortable with iconoclasm. I actually, <laughs> if, if you remind me in the main segment, I have a funny story that's kind of ridiculous also at the same time about maybe the most the most extreme version of iconoclasm that I have ever heard, at least contemporarily, um, about my dad's former church. So just remind me if I forget, okay? Okay, I do want to bring up this idea that Protestantism should be like the, or a way to engage evangelicals and Protestants with this whole statues controversy is to to pair it with, uh, you know, anti-Catholic tendencies and stuff like that. Yeah, don't worship icons, motherfucker. It's idolatry. <laughs> Come on. Um, so yes, yeah, so we're going to talk about that. Obviously, we'll do our normal thing. We'll we weave together some philosophy, some politics. We'll talk about kind of what's going on with the motivations behind both sides, and uh, yeah. Maybe see if we can come to some sort of normative conclusion at the end. Probably not, though. (laughs) (laughs) This will be a bullshitting episode, I think, if there ever was one. That sounds good to me. (laughs) But first, we should mention that if you want to support us in tangible ways, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. There you have access to several tiers of support and access to goodies, such as the monthly newsletter we send out with extra shitty minutes and sticky leaves, um, the ability to... Uh, contribute towards choosing our next patron-sponsored episode, which there is a uh, poll live right now. So if you're a patron or want to be a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash Dawn and um, get on the Democracy Motherfuckers tier and help us pick our next patron-sponsored episode. Yeah. All right. It's time. Prime the pumps. It's the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's pissing us off at the moment. Troy, what's got y'all in a tizzy so this will be topical and be a nice segue into our main topic i think um but i saw this great quote going around twitter the last week or so and i think maybe five or six different people that i follow all screenshotted it but i have no idea who originally said it so if you know help me out or if the um listeners out there know help me out to uh actually tag the person who who said this i don't think it's a it's a philosopher or any sort of, uh, you know, recognized capital T thinker. Um, hmm. But it's about respect. And here's the quote. They say, sometimes people use respect to mean treating someone like a person. And sometimes they use respect to mean treating someone like an authority. And sometimes people who are used to being treated like an authority say, if you won't respect me, I won't respect you. And what they mean is, if you won't treat me like an authority, I won't treat you like a person. Hmm. And I thought that was an incredible quote, and it gets to uh, a really deep-seated issue um, about what respect means in sort of moral philosophy in general, right? So um, the term obviously is, you know, 
um, is very old, but it's probably most uh, recognized as a Kantian term, respect, right? And what's interesting about, to not dive too deep into this, because there's a lot of sort of debates about what exactly respect means and whether it's a feeling and stuff like that, that's uh, in the weeds. We don't have to get into that. But the German word that Kant uses for respect is Achtun, which is probably the German word most people would know, um, whether they're YouTube fans or whatever, or seeing signs that say Achtun, because it's kind of like, it means like a warning. Um, I think, is it also used as stop, as a stop sign? In, I think so, yeah. In Germany? Yeah, something like that. Um, so Octoon has this kind of internationally recognized sense of like warning or stop or pay attention, right? And I don't. it wasn't used for that purposes back in the 18th century um, when Kant's using it, but it does have this sense of like stop and think, like recognize something of importance. Don't just continue on doing what you were doing. Something important is before you. It's kind of what the, um, the resonance is there. Uh, I think that's important, right? And so when you get into these ways that respect is used ambiguously in common discourse today, and especially when everyone's throwing around terms on Twitter or on Instagram or whatever, talking about the protests and talking about police brutality and the proper sort of relationship that citizens and civilians are supposed to have to the police, I thought this quote was so illustrative of the way that respect is just thrown around without sort of being persistified in an important way. And that is the sort of moral sense of respect, the kind of broader sense is to treat someone like a person sense, right? There's mm. someone here who has some inherent or intrinsic value. And so your relationship to them is important and you should think and, and decide appropriately how you're supposed to act in relation to them, right? Really broad sense of the sense in which respect is thought of. And obviously you have to um, do a lot more work to figure out what exactly the appropriate relationship it is, but it's that's at least the kind of starting point of it, right? But the way respect is often used by, sorry, um, Blue Lives Matter folks, or you see a lot of uh, like police unions or police chiefs talk about respect mm -hmm. and whether or not the media is showing respect to the police, whether the protesters are showing respect to the police. It's not this kind of respect. It's a much more narrow sense and culturally specific kind of respect, which is treat me like an authority, do what I say or else, right? That's the Cartman from South Park kind of respect. I, I, um, I literally, I was like, hey, can we do this entire segment and not mention respect my authority? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Which is not the moral sense of respect. It might follow from the moral sense of respect. I don't think it necessarily does. Although there's some kinds of that cultural kind of respect, which means something like um, treat me differently than you treat other people, right? Mm. Which there may be some senses in which that is derived from the moral sense of respect, but it's certainly not obvious. It's certainly not sort of necessarily or logically entailed that someone is supposed to treat police differently than other people simply because they say so um, or because of their position in society. So um, it's just, I guess this is kind of like a combo sticky leaves shitty minute because it's a shitty minute about the way respect is ambiguously used in the mm. capital D discourse today. Um, uh, or it's a sticky about this quote, but then a shitty minute about how respect is used um, ambiguously and inappropriately, I think. Had you heard yeah, that you know, quote before? Had you seen it being passed around this last week? I have not. I did not see it. I was not familiar with it. I, I find it interesting. One of the things that I've been really sensitive to lately is that certain words can be used as conversation stoppers and that they're just assumed to have a certain social meaning. And respect mm -hmm. seems to me to be one of those because of its ambiguity. It seems to have one of those things where everybody uses it and everyone quote unquote knows what it means. And at the same time, it's also 
like valorized as something that everyone should just positively be like, yes, you're right. We should just respect each other, respect authority. And so it's used when it's wielded oftentimes, especially in situations where there's an asymmetrical power relation. It's used with this assumed like goodness and that, that it's supposed to just be wielded as a weapon that corrects the imbalance, right? So I like the idea of stop as being related to how respect uh, could be understood because it's sort of like, Stop the chaos. Stop being outside the bounds of order of civilized society and get back in line is how it's oftentimes used. That's how respect is. Now, it could be at the kind of political level where it's like the police officers, like you're saying, respect our authority. Or it could be a parent to a kid like, hey, stop doing the things that I don't want you to do that are outside the bounds of you know, what I would prefer or of normalcy or the order that we have established, respect me. Or it could be something like come into my world of order, right? Like you just don't mm-hmm. respect me. You don't pay attention to the order of the world that I have that, that allows me to have my harmony in my space and you're like a fucking ball of chaos outside of it. So there's something about stopping chaos, order, um, coming back into the fray that I think is really interesting about how the word is ambi- 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 ambiguously used, but that I think kind of just seems to float there under the surface. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And so it needs even greater persistification to understand what exactly this moral sense of respect is supposed to be and what what that ends up saying about the sort of culturally loaded sense of respect my authority um, that's often used by those on the favored side of asymmetrical power relations as you're talking about. One thing I think that gets lost in this kind of mess though is that it actually, doing things like calling out police officers for brutality or for standing by other officers when um, they're engaged in uh, brutal actions against protesters or just not saying anything um, or not quitting their jobs when they're called on to do things that are uh, morally heinous you're actually showing them the moral sense of respect when you call them out on those things. Because you're, you're not just saying, oh, you're a, you're a lost cause, you're awful, you're evil, there's nothing you can ever done to save you, just remove you from society, right? The, obviously, the oppressed person can't actually do that to the oppressor, right? They don't have the means to do that. But they actually are able to say, look, I'm calling you up because I think that you're actually a person capable of being responsible for your actions. And I'm thinking about how the sort of larger uh, role you're playing and the unfortunate circumstances that we're all engaged in right now. And you have the ability to do something about it, however small it may be. So you're actually, mm. when you're calling out individuals, you're actually showing them the sort of moral sense of respect, even when you're purposefully not showing them the culturally loaded respect my authority sense of respect. Right. And the, re- the reason is because the, let's say, the Black Lives Matter clarion call is attached to a true universal right? Zizek or Hegel would call it like a concrete universal. Whereas Mm -hmm. the all lives matter retort is clearly that like uh, the fake universalism that we talked about with Prozorov, right? Where it's a regional particularity that's inflated to supposedly be a universal, but it ends up being like this weird metaphysical um, kind of bigotry that is just extended in the guise of a universality. But the Black Lives Matter call is actually saying, no, 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 no. We're actually standing... Uh, in attesting to this true universality and we're asking you to respect that and so it is a really interesting kind of like respect coming from two different places and so there is kind of a there is an appeal whether it's implicit or not to a higher moral standard uh, by the marginalized voice when they're like no no fucking pay attention to this cry 
and respect this. So it's almost like a respect discourse coming from different ways, um, issuing from different, we could say, first principles or starting points, you know? Yeah, I mean, philosophical jargon aside, it's pretty clear when someone says Black Lives Matter, whether um, whatever sort of, um, however loaded you think that term may be with certain policy implications or whatever, it's pretty clear what the person is saying, that black people are not treated as the same, of having the same value as other people in society. They're not respected. Yeah, they're not respected. Whereas when someone says all lives matter, you might not even know what that matter is supposed to signify. It's kind of empty. It has no content. Like, are you saying this like... Like in the metaphysical sense, like they're made in the image of God? Are you saying that actually everything's already cool under the current political system? Is, is it an ethical argument? Like what are you saying when you say all lives matter? You know? Yeah, because obviously if you're taking it from a purely logical sense, um, black lives matter is entailed by all lives matter, right? But of course right. it's used as a retort. So it wouldn't be a retort if uh, it simply entailed <laughs> right. the thing it's retorting, right? right. So. It's obviously being used in a sort of uh, – there's, there's like some subterfuge going on there. And so you have to kind mm. of excavate it, and it's unclear what actually the content is supposed to be other than just a purely performative one, which is the no. Mm. So I, I did want to – there's one bit of pushback I would make or maybe just say like a constructive uh, addendum that I would add to the quote. Um, can you read the final clause again? Yeah, so after talking about the two senses of respect – yeah. Uh, some people will say, if you won't respect me, I won't respect you. And they mean, if you won't treat me like an authority, I won't treat you like a person. If you won't treat me like an authority, I won't treat you like a person. I would actually say, so I, the assumption here is obviously it's a great quote for like ethics and politics and stuff like that. But I think philosophically, it presumes the preconstituted notion of what it means to be a human, right? I think that actually it's precisely that... Um, this power relation is what constitutes what either being human is or not being human is. Now, I'm not saying the quote doesn't couldn't speak to that, but what I would say is by uh, the authority figure actually exercising uh, their authority, they're actually doing so in a particular form of humanism or uh, humanizing, let's say. So... It, it, it basically, I'm going to kind of use like my post-human idea. I don't really think that the concept of the human pre-exists. I think it's something that's invented and changed and transformed based on, you know, different epochs and different orientations to the world and stuff like that. And so the power relation based on a certain like authority figure um, actually constitute what it means to be human within that particular power relation. So that is something, that's the only thing I would kind of like add to that, which I think is just an interesting point for conversation, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, th- I think it does. And I think the, the term person is used, not human, although it may have a similar connotation. And so what I take it to be is that the word person there is simply acting as a stand-in for thing of value or thing which matters, right? Yeah. Um, and so there could, be, there could be other things that matter as well, right? And that's obviously mm. an open debate. Um, and so, yeah, if you, if you just take it as sort of the deflated sense of uh, not necessarily like what it is to be a human or necessarily what even a person is as opposed to other things that may matter, but just a thing that matters. Yeah. Well, I mean, and in personhood, also, it, there seems to be assumed there a thing that matters, which is capable of being responsible for its actions or knowing what it's doing or something like that, too, because probably wouldn't uh, you might think that dogs matter, but you probably wouldn't include dog in this. You yeah. Well, and dog the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and in personhood in uh you know, under a nation state means something very different 
than maybe personhood did in medieval pre-capitalist Europe, right? It's tied up in property relations, it's tied up in virtue, civic responsibility, like all of these various different things. So what does it mean to be a person? And there is a very particular sense in which a civilized, quote-unquote civilized person is constituted under this particular historical regime, right? And you can depersonalize somebody um, in certain ways and in various ways. And I would actually say that by uh, respecting certain authority figures under this particular power regime essentially requires a depersonalization or a personalization in a particular way, a way that I would say is a degraded form of personalization. Yeah, I think that fits right into the idea that we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so should we segue into this main topic? Yeah, I have a feeling that was actually kind of like a perfect primer for this sort of thing, so let's jump into it. Yeah, so we were thinking about talking about um, the protests, but specifically the issue of, which seems to have gotten lots of attention, and I think we all kind of see it maybe as being a natural um, a natural consequence of, of the protests to sort of see these various statues of, of historical figures being torn down in, in America and in the UK and in Belgium, and I can't remember if there's anywhere else too, um, at least in the news lately. But it is kind of a strange thing when you kind of abstract away from it that these protests would have led to this sort of almost viral act of tearing down statues, which is has lots of historical um, importance, right? I mean, when a nation is liberated, oftentimes that in a really important symbolic event is the tearing down of the oppressor, the statue of the oppressor, right? Yeah. Um, that's obviously different here because there's some not sort of the same kind of liberation happening, but there seems to be a similar sentiment. And so trying to figure out the symbolic importance and the symbolic content of that event, if it's, if it's important when it happens to Saddam Hussein, then it's important when it happens to uh, Edward Colston or, you know, Churchill, who certainly most people wouldn't think of as being uh, sort of parallel to those historical um, examples we're talking about in sort of, you know, second and third world countries. Yeah, it is really interesting. I think so. The first thing is there's so much bad faith in the the kind of like preserve history discourse that we have to. Well, that just goes without saying, right? (laughs) Right, but like we have to mention it because okay. So I lived in the UK in a place that has a lot of history. I currently live in a place that doesn't have as deep rooted history, but you know, there's statues and shit like that. Um, Maybe of like problematic historical figures probably um but like you know i lived in the uk and i can confirm that those statues are pretty much ignored by most people except for people who are like art historians or something like that now you might like the aesthetic of it because it like fits within your like cozy village view where you've got like some fucking slave trader in your city or something like that and you walk past it every day and it might like create some semblance of um kind of like some sort of spatial connection or something like that, unconsciously or consciously. It might. It, it very, But I imagine that it's very slight. And I can definitely tell you that the majority of attention paid to those statues is by drunk people pissing on them, throwing up <laughs> on them, taking photos of them. Like, nobody really, really, I think, is invested in the material object of the statue. Um, or let's say very few people are. And then I think even further to that, not many people actually believe 
that this is some sort of icon of history, this thing that like pulls in our attention and that opens us up to the past, right? I think so few people actually think that. If people want history, they read books, they watch documentaries, they go to museums, you know? Like, yes, classes might do like a walk, you know, might some peripatetic thing where you're walking around the city like, oh, and here we have this thing that was built in this time, blah, blah, blah. But most of these statues, one, were erected relatively recently, um, except for like a lot, some of the like kind of the like older ones. But the ones that are being attacked are generally ones that have been uh, erected recently, um, you know, 20th century. And they're not made of great material. They're not like these masterworks of craftsmanship. And nobody really gives a shit about them. So I just think it's so interesting to kind of like really get into people's psyches. And I have a reason why I think the people are really ultimately upset about like tearing the statues down. And I think it's jealousy. I think they're jealous that they wish that they could do some free shit. But they are so – they're so trapped within the fucking – the rules of the superego that they see other people like having some sort of like free release and actually contesting something. And they're like, well, motherfuckers, I can't just go around and tear down things that I don't like. But these people can. And so there's a little bit of jealousy um, that's tied up in this as well. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, yeah. It's very much um, the kind of uh, positions being switched where we often talk about the podcast how – um, conservatives in America, especially, at least get their jouissance, right? Whereas leftists generally don't. They're just miserly and never enjoy anything. Austere and... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Joy, joy is evil. Rather Protestants, basically, or Puritans. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of being flipped where you, every time you see a video of one of these statues being taken down, it's joyous. It's yeah. not really angry. It's it's no. kind of a... It's a bit of angry, but it's mixed with joy. And nothing that makes it good, necessarily. But that that's a certain... That, that's the sort of emotional tinge um, or like, uh, you know, the pathos of the event is a joyous one. And that's when you see that and you see that cops aren't stopping it because it would, I don't know, look bad or whatever. Or they're doing something else or too busy with protests or uh, too busy breaking into various African-American uh, congressmen's offices and eating popcorn um, to actually do anything about uh, any crime that's happening. Mm-hmm. That's uh you can look at that and be like, how come they're getting away with it? And I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. There's a definite sense in which that's the case, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. When white people see black people enjoying themselves, they really get scared, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, no. Like, they have found joy. We're the only ones allowed to enjoy ourselves by vicariously living through fucking Trump and shit like that. But no, they're enjoying themselves. We can't let that happen. Yeah. You know what's interesting? From, like, the centrist leb side, which is, you know— um, I always just kind of like tone policing and stuff, right? Well, we don't we don't do violent actions like this. We're supposed to engage in petitioning and um, going through the correct channels to make sure this happens. Look, the correct channels haven't worked. Everyone has tried to go through the correct channels to these things. Guess who has control of the correct channels? People who don't want to mess with putting up Confederate statues, right? And dealing with people who would be upset if they took them down through the mm quote-unquote correct channels so in every case where one of these touches has been taken down someone and for many cases decades long um sort of attempts to take the statues down through correct means didn't work right so you the whole like correct channels bullshit from the from centrists is always just um at, at best it's just ignorant and at worst it's bad faith well, and I also wonder if there's like – it's almost like an, a neurotic impulse that they still have to be tied to the juridical political channels, you know? Like they can't 
they're afraid of a radical freedom in existentialist terms. They have to be kind of so inculcated into these structures that um, that anything outside of that seems maybe we could say disrespectful to the political order. So it's all about order, right? There's something about just like the maintenance of this certain um, like liberal, and I mean not liberal in the way that Americans speak of it. I'm talking about like uh, the classical understanding of the liberal political order. Like there's like social contract stuff. There are uh, voting rights. There are these bureaucratic technological um methods that we follow and that's just what we do if we want to maintain what order so there's something about that that's going on here that i think is really fascinating too yeah i think that's exactly right and the issue is what happens when that order is clearly um sort of normatively in something's immoral or unjust right what do you do when the order itself uh, is not to be respected Right. And that's what we're seeing here. The assumption from the centrist in saying, you know, we should go through correct channels and show respect for for justice and whatever assumes that the order itself is just automatically. But that's mm. exactly what's in question right now. Like the protests happen only because the order itself is unjust. Right. Which means and I think it's pretty obvious when you look at the as you were saying earlier about how these statues, in many cases, the Confederate statues were mass produced often well after the Civil War many times during the Jim Crow era from, you know, 1910, 1960, um, during the Jim Crow era as a way of quelling um, sentiments among blacks for equality. Like mm. that was the purpose of the statues. They're not just morally neutral history. No mm. one has a problem if, if there's, you know, a historical museum that talks about the slave trade and has pictures or even statues or some sort of, you know, picturations of, of slave traders, right? Um, no one has a problem with that. Uh, but they do have a problem if you put that statue up in a civic square because the statue is doing something else, right? We talked mm. in the previous episode a bit about how about um, sort of the illocutionary uh, content or status of an act, right? What does a statue actually do when it's in a civic mm. square? It's not history. As you were saying earlier, it doesn't teach anybody anything. There's almost no historical content there except for a person's name, maybe a plaque very, very minimally describing um, some historical significant act that they did or whatever, right? And usually that's meant to be as uh, ambiguous and unclear as possible so that nobody gets pissed off. Um, what do the statues actually do? They don't represent history in a way that like a history book or a museum might try to do in some sense, right? They're in some sense normatively pointing towards what the future should be based upon some historical figure. That's what statues do, right? When you go to Staples Center in LA and you see the statues of Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Shaq, and eventually there'll be one of Kobe, right? <laughs> what do those things do? They don't just tell you history, right? They sort of speak to a legacy that you're supposed to have, like as an, you're supposed to keep now, right? If you, if the Lakers all of a sudden were terrible and the players didn't try very hard and the management was awful or whatever, right? You might look back on those statues and say things were better than because they cared. So that meaning we should care. You're not really making a historical statement that you're saying there's some sort of normative thread that goes through this organization and it's been lost and we want to regain it. And that sort of conservative reclaiming of history, which maybe never existed, right? Uh, that's mm. what statues do. They sort of try to recapture some moment from the past to use as a sort of normative um, point that we're supposed to aspire to now. So why did a bunch of places in the South put up statues of Confederate generals? Um, and slave traders uh, in the Jim Crow era. Well, it wasn't to celebrate any sort of 
history, right? Or to sort of inform people about things neutrally. It's very much trying to make a point about what this place is. It's a place built by these people and for these kinds of people and not for mm-hmm. other people is implied. Mm. There's there's an issue of like legitimacy and um, I'm thinking a lot too of like, like think N.T. Wright talking about the Old Testament Israelites using identity markers, right? Uh, particularly the Sabbath and um, circumcision, you know, you've, and then the Shema, right? As like the hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, as being like the thing that, that identifies them, that grounds them, that separates them, that you could say, quote unquote, purifies them, sanctifies them, makes them holy, right? Uh, in contestation to the other people, to the other. And you can like really tighten down um the, the borders uh, of order here where you separate like the cultural and social and political borders where you separate yourself and you purify yourself from others through these processes of self-legitimation. And then this makes me think of uh, how we do this. Like, so I think these statues are kind of like materializations, contemporary materializations of doing this for a particular culture, a particular uh, political worldview, you might say, social worldview, cultural worldview. Um, And it makes me think a lot of Jean-Francois Lyotard's The Postmodern Condition, where a lot of people miss something that he says, and it's really in follow-up stuff that he talks about this, but everybody knows that Lyotard says that postmodernity is incredulity toward meta-narrative, right? Like, people just stopped believing in the state, the church, um, the the free individual, the, the narratives of progress that emerged out of modernity is what he's saying and those so there's this kind of chaos that comes in the post-world war ii particularly the post-world war ii landscape right um people aren't believing in those things anymore so there's a crisis here but one of the things that people misunderstand is that it's not he's not just saying that as a universal but there's something interesting about legitimation that he's critiquing as well because he kind of gets into a little bit of a debate with habermas at this time who's also writing about legitimation crises and the issue for leotard is it's self-legitimating Meta narratives, and what that means is that there is no ground, right? And the ground has kind of been taken away, right? This is maybe a death of Godding kind of thing. The ground has been swept away. There is no ground, and so what you get are these self-legitimating forms of power, these self-legitimating forms of cultural supremacy um, that are seeking to ground themselves by using these identity markers, these materializations of their kind of worldview, for lack of a better term, that are then thrust out there into the public sphere, into the common space. But when they do that, they are in a way impositions, you could even say like violent tears into the larger social fabric, especially in a pluralist democratic society, because they only represent that self-legitimating power that they issue from. And so they are materializations of all of that stuff. So the act of contesting these statues and tearing these statues down is actually like a true expression of freedom from, let's say, the God, quote unquote, or the meta-narrative, the self-legitimized meta-narrative that grounds the kind of um, valorization of that statue in the first place. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And I like this idea that um, this engagement in, in self-legitimation, right? Because statues specifically, uh, as we said, they don't really have any sort of historical content really in the way that they're sort of dealt with or what they actually do as they exist in a town in a civic square or whatever. But there's a sense in which um, it does do this form of legitimation, right? 
whatever this person, whatever like role this person plays in um, the existence of of this area, this location, in the way that it is, is it's like a legitimating factor. Like this is a person who's beyond repute, or even if they've done you know, wrong things before, in some sense, their ultimate significance is some some act or some series of acts which uh, legitimates this location as what it is, and the culture that exists here as what it is, right? And you can't really question that because it's a statue. It's this huge, lumbering, a towering figure, and it's in some sense immutable, right? Uh, it's very difficult to damage or kill. It's, it's sort of changeless in a way. It's always going to be there. It's there from decade after decade, right? Uh, and that's kind of why that they're very conservative when you think about it in that sense, mm. um, statues. But they don't really have to be, I don't think. I saw someone say that what if instead of having a statue of Edward Colston, we had a different memorial at the same location every single day for mm. each of the uh, persons who were whose lives were stolen um, as he engaged in the Atlantic slave trade. And they said it would take something like 236 years if we did, if we did mm. one every day for that to be done. And that was, I mean, mm. that's just sort of quantification. So what does that even mean? But the idea that I was thinking about of how important that was, was, you know, when you actually have public memorials of persons who were oppressed or persons who were um, abused or in some sense um, not included in sort of the uh, in the social hierarchy in the past, in the present or whatever, there's some sense in which that's not pointing to some like previous lost uh, great um, period in history that we're trying to reclaim. In some mm. sense, it's pointing to sort of mistake in the past, but then by showing that thing, we're not just saying, oh, this mistake happened. We're in a sense saying we need to remember this. And we need to, so in some sense, let it play a role in what we do now. So that kind of a thing, I think, can also, you know, be abused in the sense that you can think about how like MLK is thought about and whitewashed um, by by liberals in the United States, right? Remembering MLK usually means don't do anything and just hope that civil rights happen um, mm. after you're murdered or something like that. But there's, I think, some sort of potential there for using public memorials in this non-conservative way. By sort of eschewing or or you know just trying to uh, uh, disabuse ourselves of this um, sort of sentiment for a past history, which we're trying to reclaim. Yeah, remembrance can be a very passive and benign act, right? One that allows you to like be prostrated before the material impetus of the object, which is kind of I think what what people are saying if they say to like preserve this for history and let's remember these people. Well, remember them in what way? Remember them according to what disposition to them? Do you want us to just remember this, like you're saying, this past myth that you're trying to reclaim, that you're trying, that you're like clamoring to like bring back? Because that's really what's happening in the act of remembrance. It's not just you here on the timeline kind of looking back there and that there's a gap between the two. But what you're actually doing is that you're actually reaffirming and reinstantiating and therefore re-legitimizing and validating that uh, that material expression of that self-legitimizing meta-narrative every single time, right? So it relates to like the the old Dixie kind of narrative, the flying of the Confederate flags, the the kind of antebellum stuff. You know, I don't know if you heard about the country band Lady Antebellum. They kind of like changed their name recently. It's just the acronym because I think it's just LA now or something like that because they're like, oh, we realized that our name was offensive. It's like motherfuckers have been around for like 20 years. You're just doing this now. But anyway. Oh, is um, that Lady A? Yeah, that's Lady A, I think. I, I saw the yeah. jokes about how Kid A grew up to become Lady A. <laughs> 
but like that's the thing is that remembering isn't just simply it isn't harmless there's an act there's there's something active in remembrance right and the question is is what is it doing it's not just simply this neutral act where you can like look back on things objectively in some sort of like i'm separating myself because i'm i'm just a scientist that's just analyzing something no Every act of remembrance, every act of engagement with these material expressions of these meta narratives is a sort of reaffirmation of its existence, right? Now, it's reaffirming it in what sense? Are you reaffirming it according to this myth that you're trying to retell yourself? This myth of like a white South or this myth of um, a great Western European empire, this myth of progress and civilization? What is the myth that you're reproducing in the act of remembrance, in the act of um, like prostrating yourself, if you will, before this material object? Or is it an affirmation of an alternative history that that icon opens us up to? And that's the history of oppression, the history of violence, the history of power asymmetry that built the land upon which this statue is now a beacon. What is it speaking to? So affirmation in, in, in this sense is very delusing. It doesn't mean like it's not a value judgment. It's more just... Um, kind of an opening up to and accepting what the thing is so that you can analyze it from within a particular angle, right? But that's, that's I think, the interesting thing is it isn't just simply this kind of harmless act of engagement with some sort of piece of art or something like that. It's actually a reaffirmation every single day that you walk past that statue, every single day that that statue remains there, that it takes, if it takes tax dollars because city cleaners have to go and clean it or whatever the fuck it is, I don't know. But every single act that is related to it is sort of reinstantiating it um, within these various different flows of meaning and uh, and remembrance and affirmation, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think that kind of reaffirms the point that we have to think about, you know, in thinking about the normative content of these statues, right? Because it's it's hard enough to figure whether or not actual, you know, capital H history can be done objectively, um, right. let alone statues, which clearly are not meant to be objective accounts of history they're meant to they have some normative content about what this place is supposed to be like right um, yeah. however ambiguous that might be which is why i think it's important to, to really think deeply about what is that illocutionary content of the statue what is it actually doing here um, by being in this location so this is why like you know john cleese um, from monty python said this week at some point that um, what are we going to do next like take down statues of socrates and aristotle because they um, affirmed and promoted slavery. And, and first of all, Socrates uh, didn't do that. Um, and Plato also, uh, it's ambiguous whether or not he justified slavery. But there's certainly points in the Republic where he talks about slavery being a great evil. So um, exclude Plato and Socrates from that, please. Aristotle well, Petr- definitely did. We could get him for pederasty, though. <laughs> yeah, we'll stop talking about that. <laughs> We're going to get ourselves fired from our jobs talking about... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> the, found, the foundations of Western philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Aristotle definitely did promote slavery as a natural institution, right? Um, but that said, we, I think I do think we can think about what is the role that a statue of Aristotle plays somewhere in, you know, in whether it's in Athens or it's in, you know, the present day version Macedonia or whatever. Um, is it playing a role of? sort of reaffirming the justification of of slavery? Or is Aristotle's statue playing a different role? And I don't know the answer to that, but my, my guess would be if, if, you know, and people can correct me if I'm wrong about this, a statue of Aristotle is going to celebrate some things like natural science and um, the academy and stuff like that. That would be the role that that statue plays. 
Um, what is the role of a statue of Edward Colston? It's not doing anything but justifying the one thing he did, which he's famous for, which is the slave trade, right? So there's no ambiguity there. Um, there's some ambiguity to the Aristotle thing, so I don't know the right answer to whether or not you should have a statue of Aristotle. But my guess is that it probably isn't going to be the justification of slavery as being sort of what that statue is doing in that location. Now, Churchill is a different matter. What is the role that Churchill plays? Because, you know, for a lot of people, Churchill plays the role of defeating the Nazis. Like, this is this symbolizes the bravery of, you know, British people during the occupation. And, the Dunkirk um, spirit or some shit. Yeah, something like that. Now, also, it means to anybody who is um, Bengali or Indian or whatever, it's not going to signify that at all. And that probably should be the most important thing, given how many millions of people died from starvation due to Churchill's actions. And it's also not going to mean that to people who are working class um, in Britain and who suffered from many of the times that Churchill uh, engaged in union busting and and uh, all the terrible things that he did against the working class. So um, that's, I think, a, um, a more debatable question. I'm not being British. I don't know. But I would be curious what you would think. So here's my question. So I think we would both admit that there's some – this is a consequence of – uh, pluralism of societies becoming more and more diverse, right? And of integration becoming something that is becoming part and parcel of global capitalism. So in a weird sense, there's also something kind of insidious going on here um, while at the same time creating these diverse communities, right? Now, the only reason I bring that up is because uh, 50 years ago, when the UK wasn't as diverse, not only in terms of actual like uh, demographics, but even in terms of like political and social power, you know, people weren't as offended. In, not as many people were as offended of Churchill. One because I mean, I'm sure if they erected a statue of Churchill in fucking uh, in the midst of like a, a Bengali community, well, then that would have been fucked up, right? But that like, clearly it, would have been, yeah, what we're talking yeah, yeah, about. Yeah. But like just sitting in like a park in fucking the UK somewhere or something like that, it's not – it wasn't as like uh, – as offensive because it kind of was speaking of a particular like community myth that they were telling themselves. But now the problem is is that you've opened up the doors um, to these more kind of multicultural, diverse, pluralistic communities. And so now more people are confronting it. If this is supposed to be your land, if you're saying come and be a part of our economic system – our liberal capitalist economic system, then you got to fucking deal with the consequences that kind of come from that, right? So it's almost like they're shooting themselves in the foot. The system shoots itself in the foot. It wants to have its colonialism and it wants to have its fucking global capital flows at the same time. You can't have both motherfuckers, right? There are tensions that are going to emerge. So I think that's one of the things that I find interesting. But then here would be my question. Do we think and this is all. This means that this is like a contingent historical phenomenon that is that is happening, right? That's converging at this particular point in this time, based on these various different like flows of power and cultural experience, blah blah blah, whatever. Would there be a time when a statue of Aristotle historically does become offensive to the point where people are like, you know what? No, we actually do need to tear that fucking thing down because it doesn't represent who we are now and it actually represents the opposite it is something that is offensive because i don't know maybe 600 years from now western thought will be so sort of um critiqued that people are just uh they're just so frustrated if you will by the foundations that have allowed 
for like a Western imperialist dominance to flourish. And so they're like, fuck this. We got to go back to the forefathers of this ideology and let's tear that shit down. And let's start actually thinking about, you know, uh, voices that have been excluded from having statues erected. Would you be comfortable with people tearing it down under different historical circumstances if it were um, like attesting to like a, a norm that was quote unquote right? So what you're saying is when the teleological biologists take over, and uh, enslave the rest of humanity, um, that's when we need to take Aristotle down. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know about those motherfuckers, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's it's going to depend a bit on historical circumstance. And that's probably where the Churchill thing really gets its, um, gets its force, right? Because as you're pointing out, we have this tension here, right? Where to some people, Churchill does honestly signify this, you know, kind of unambiguously good thing, like the Dunkirk spirit. Um, but then it also to other people signifies atrocities, right? And racism and mass death and, you know, things that would be similar to someone who would, you know, see like a Hitler statue or a Stalin statue, right? Um, mm. And so it signifies both of these things. What's important, I think, is that, you know, Britain and America is obviously as guilty as this as anybody, hasn't dealt with those um, atrocities. It has not properly dealt with them. And the way that you can see, like, um, Germany, at least, is a pretty good example of how to deal with those things, right? How to be active and forceful and and sort of uh, continually educating um, the youth of every generation about the mistakes of the past and how uh, we're not going to do that again and how we're going to do everything we can to develop a culture that isn't like that again, right? Uh, it's not an unambiguously good example, but it's probably a lot better than America and, and Britain, right? Yeah. Um, and so if you haven't dealt with those things, then it seems like you really can't point to like, no, 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 Churchill just represents the Dunkirk spirit. We've already dealt with those things and we've sort of, um, we've asked for forgiveness when we've done the appropriate uh, form of, of, of atonement or or, what, or um, penance or whatever it is, uh, social penance. Um, none of that's even been broached, really, ultimately. Uh, it's still kind of anathema to even speak ill of Churchill at all. Um, so, and mo I think most people probably don't, even don't, don't know about the various atrocities uh, uh, of Churchill is pretty much just celebrated, especially in America, as just being a leading figure against the Nazis, and that's pretty much it, right? right. Um, so, and that's if you if you if your sort of nation or your culture hasn't dealt with those things at all, then you really can't, I think, fall back on the but 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 it it sort of actually speaks to this hmm. unambiguously good thing. Now you yeah. can't really do that until you've gone through some important um, process of atonement. And and this is where things get even more complicated because. Was it good that the world was not taken over by Nazism? Yeah, that's probably good. <laughs> However, you cannot somehow think that Churchill and that uh, Truman and, well, Roosevelt before him, that they got into the war because they were like, ah, the Holocaust is this horrible thing. We need to go in there because they're violating the moral sanctity of human life, and we're humanitarians, so this is a fucking humanitarian mission. No, no, no. It was a threat to the Anglo Empire. Like, Churchill is part of the lineage of Rhodes and all of these other fuckers that just wanted Anglo supremacy. So that was the real concern. It was political. 
It was socioeconomic. It did not come from this first principle that was so, like, ethically committed to creating a, an egalitarian world free from fascism. We have to fight it wherever it is. No, no, fascism was an alternate imperialist vision that they didn't like because it contested with their imperialist vision. Now, this is where it's tough. Does that mean it was bad and they shouldn't have intervened? Nah, I, no. But then at the same time, does that mean it was just unequivocally good? And this is where using moral categories, I think, for these types of like geopolitical activities becomes very fraught. I don't know what you think about that because you tend We're to using be more individual moral categories. Individual, yeah, exactly. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's really all I was. I was. I was thinking about because then um, you could think about this just just in other instances too. I can't remember when, before you were talking about Churchill. You were talking about what did you say before Churchill? Oh shoot, I forgot. But no, no. But still, the idea is again is like we look at these historical figures that engaged in these activities, and the question is, is by what criteria are we quote unquote judging them? Right? Um, how do we deploy a moral framework um, to criticize, to engage, to judge these activities that that might require some real kind of nuanced, but then at the same time without just excusing investigation? Because a lot of times you get that too. Like, oh, remember that so-and-so was also this, and then, and then it just doesn't go anywhere, right? At some point you got to fucking make a decision. So I don't know. It just becomes, I think, a really kind of complex matter that needs to be investigated further you know yeah i mean i think there's there's so many um fraught issues here that i don't know what to think about i mean i think you're absolutely right that sort of pigeonholing individual moral categories in this clearly different but also moral space it's just not an individual moral space right it's a it's a social or a collective moral space and so there's gonna be different categories uh, and trying to figure out what those are and how they relate to the individual ones is very difficult right and especially when you get into this idea of how you deal with like moral heroes. There's a lot of debate mm -hmm. about whether or not we should even think about moral heroes at all. Some people yeah. think it's incredibly important to think about moral heroes as sort of things you can uh, exemplify and imitate, right? And some people think it's it's just dangerous and we shouldn't do it. And we should, um, we can be entirely immoral without having sort of notion of even super erogatory actions at all. Uh, I don't know what to think about that, really. Um, I kind of see both sides of the, of the arguments as, as having something um, of worth. But uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of issues there to think through. And it's, it's clearly not the case that we should just uh, transpose individual moral categories onto you know, geopolitical messes of history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think I have a little bit of like a, a kind of anarchistic, iconoclastic spirit in me where I'm like, fuck the moral heroes, man. We don't need those fuckers, you know. Like, yeah, but okay. then what do you what do you do when like Ethan Hawke plays John Brown in this new series coming out? <laughs> Like, I'm going to be like, fuck, yeah, that guy's awesome. <laughs> That's my guy. <laughs> but see, then you just go to Twitter and you realize that he was just a fucking white savior. So, you know, you can't have good things in this life, Troy. <laughs> it's just not possible. Okay? Um, so I did want to say one thing that was really funny. I had two things that I wanted to, to, to say real quick. But one thing before, before I move on to the thing that I thought was more kind of substantial is this is kind of fun. So I've got a, a friend who's a professor of anthropology here at the University of Sydney. And he sent me uh, on a thread that I was talking about with the statues. He sent me like a link and then some photos of these statues. And I can't remember where they were, so forgive me. But it's somewhere uh, on the Asian continent um, that's these statues. Because it's in a place where like statues are typically forbidden in this one particular society. Uh, except for these one statues were erected explicitly so that people would walk by and spit on them. 
because <laughs> these were like disgraced people. And I thought that was really kind of a great idea, right? Like, because I think I said something like, oh, cool, you're really concerned about the history of these statues. Well, you know, history is something that's like perpetually changing and stuff like that. So what if we just built on and around the statue of these slave traders um, of people like pissing and decapitating the statues and stuff like that? Because that's part of the historical engagement with these statues, right? Um, and then he actually sent me the link to this statue. And I was like, that's actually kind of funny. Like, first of all, funny, but also kind of cool at the same time. That you would literally yeah, just put up a statue of fucking Churchill that's intended to piss on. Because people just piss on that statue anyway. Guaranteed more <laughs> people have thrown up and pissed on that Churchill statue than have revered it over the years. I'm sorry. It's just a fucking fact. I know because, you know, I may not have on that particular statue, but I may have been involved in some shenanigans with statues when I lived in the UK when you're all drunk and shit like that. It happens. <laughs> people, aren't re- people aren't revering that shit, okay? Yeah, it's very different than like the uh, I forget the Latin term for it, but for like um, removing someone from history who's been disgraced, it's kind of like the Western way of doing it, right? It's to just uh, if someone's been disgraced, you just kind of remove them from history. Right, That's just it, right. right? Um, but yeah, notice there's no uh, statues of uh, Benedict Arnold that I know yeah. of. <laughs> That's true, despite That's the true. fact but- that he's historically super important and is probably the uh, second most like. Of, of, if you could ask anybody in America, name generals during the Revolutionary War, they would say Washington and then Arnold, right? Mm. Yeah, and then, of course, it's become so infamous that you will, like, use his term pretty much exclusively in negative terms now, right? Yeah, but then, yeah, no statues, even though historically important. Yeah. Do you think that would have any sort of, like, actual, like, jokes aside, do you think it would have any sort of like value, social value, to have statues that were intended to be spit upon. Yeah, I mean, it would just change the entire, um, like, way that statues exist and what they actually do, you know, what the, like, active force is um, yeah. in, in America. They just don't have that sort of, it would be confusing, right? Now, you could change it over time, right, by doing stuff like that, but just not how we signify statues today, right? They, they have this sort of yeah. normative force to them. So, okay, now this goes to the last point that I, that I kind of wanted to say. And I think that part of it, there's something about the attitude of iconoclasm in tearing down these statues that the preservers, let's say, have a problem with, right? So it's almost like, like, and I get this in conversations that I have with family and friends who are opposed to this. Um, not only is there that jealousy of enjoyment that we talked about at the top of the segment, but I think there's also something about like, this attitude. So here, so I was I was in like a pop punk band growing up, right? And we were sponsored by a clothing company called Blatant. And I remember that my dad really had a problem with this clothing company because he thought that it was just in your face, kind of fuck you, like it's blatant, like Ugh, you know, like we're blatantly doing it. And yeah, it kind of was, I guess. Wait, wait, but, you know, in, in what sense was it? Was like the style blatant also? We used a fucking nautical star, bro. <laughs> Like like every other fucking Orange County clothing company <laughs> that's ever famous stars and straps and all that shit. It's fucking nautical star. No, it, it wasn't like aggressive and in your face, but it was the word blatant that he didn't like. And of course he associated it with our music, which was kind of like that pop punky kind of like get out of town, get me out of here, fuck you, a little bit of rebellion kind of stuff. But I, so I think he associated it with that. So I think there's something about like the affect as well that is um, – that is like uh, detested by people who want to preserve these monuments. That that people are against it, and and it, I think it there's um, a sense in which they don't like the freedom of expression, 
right? Because it's coming from the wrong place, a place that they don't deem to be appropriate, which is the black voice, the voice that they don't think should be able to speak. But I think there's something about this attitude that I think is really interesting, um, that it's almost like, oh, you're just these punks, right? You have no respect you have no, you have no um, desire to maintain the order. Like, shut up and get back in line. You know, get back into place. Let's just restore civility. And of course, there's the myth of harmony that has never existed, or, or maybe like some sort of myth of salvation that we could just be on the road to harmony if everybody would just simply get in line and just respect everything. Then we'd have this really nice, like, fucking Stepford Wives existence or whatever the fuck they want. I don't know what they want, but. But I think there's something about this attitude that I think kind of viscerally they respond to as well. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's – I was thinking about how it's, it's almost the exact same posture or attitude that you get from people who say – don't understand why they can't use the N-word, right? It's like it's like by being, uh, by being black, you have this like special dispensation mm. to do things and it's not fair, right? And so they get back on this like fairness <laughs> angle, right? Uh, okay. It's very much like, like yeah, schoolyard type arguments. Um, and attitudes. Hmm. You know, so I had a friend share something on Insta, and it was uh, a, a brief talk by Farrakhan when he was on, like, the Phil Donahue show or whatever, like, years ago. And he said something. So there was a woman who stands up, and, you know, he's he's kind of, like, doing his normal spiel, and a woman stands up and says, um, I think that what we're afraid of, it was a white woman, she's like, I think that what we're afraid of is that violence that like you're advocating violence and his response was so brilliant i haven't stopped thinking about it actually for the last couple days he said you're afraid of violence is actually deriving from a guilt of what you understand based on what the white world has done to the black world and to the black voice he's like and you're projecting that outwards he's like there has never been an instance of black people being the aggressors against white people Right? He's like, so you are just basing this supposition on a projection. You're forgetting about and a Haiti, dude. What's up? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. But, but no, no, but that, that was liberation. That wasn't an aggression. No, right? yeah, I'm joking. As if that was yeah, yeah, yeah. freeing yourself from slavery is aggressive. Yeah, 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 right, exactly. But that's precisely it, right? Like when, when the Black Panthers take up arms and march to the state capitol or whatever it was in California, you know, like, and all white people start freaking out, that's not a violent act. That's them, like, reclaiming their autonomy in the midst of a world where they have been uh, oppressed, right? So they've never been the aggressor was his point. He's like, so you're afraid of violence, but really that's a guilt and a fear based on how you understand how like the white colonial mentality has operated in the world. He's saying, but that's not our world. He's like, we're not advocating that. And we have never given any historical evidence to say that we're speaking of that type of violence. And I was like, you know what? There's something so fucking profound in that and so interesting. And I kind of thought that that was really interesting. And I wonder if this attitude, this fear again, is also a type of projection, right? It's a fear of this like blatant or like outburst of of freedom and joy if they're looking at that and they're saying well wait a second if that were us we would tear shit up and we'd enslave people and we'd fuck shit up because that's what we historically do right we'd we'd impose our imperial and colonial regimes onto countries around the world because that's just what we do so if we let them have power then they're going to do that to us but farrakhan was like no that's not it at all and i thought that was really fucking interesting yeah i guess exactly right that there's there's so much of this like we can't, and you see this rhetoric happening a lot in sort of even like uh, the Confederacy's arguments uh, for slavery, and even the founders' arguments for slavery. Even those who said that slavery was evil um, as an institution said it was a necessary evil, 
uh, in part because, among other reasons, if we let the black man free, he'll kill the white man, right? And so for what the white man's done to him. And so we can't let that happen. Like this just, is just a necessary, unfortunate um, social hierarchy that has to exist or otherwise violence will erupt, right? It's kind mm. of an abuser type logic. Like I can't mm. let I can't let my wife or my girlfriend or my partner um, have her own time and have her own money and have access to any sort of autonomy. Otherwise she'll use it to go and cheat on me and stuff mm. like that. Um, but then you use that as even there's no evidence of it, right? And then the second that she's sort of disrespectful or uh, talks back, whatever, it just reaffirms your sense of, oh, she's, she just wants to cheat on me. She just wants to leave me. I got to keep up with this like strong arm stuff, right? And it further mm-hmm. justifies this like paranoia that someone's out to get you. And that, that's just a cycle, right? It's a psychological paranoiac cycle um, of reaffirming structural violence because of some abstract fear that it's in, so that's quelling a violence against you. And then any Man. evidence of any pushback is then going to be seen as, oh, here's the proof that the violence will erupt if I, if I let go, if I let yeah. up. Yeah, man. We need to fucking psychoanalyze the shit out of these people. <laughs> and okay, ourselves. So I, yeah, go ahead. So I have a question. Yeah. I, a, a similar um, thing has been going on with the statues with media, and I'm curious to get your opinion on it. Because um, I think it's a bit of a different scenario. So did you hear that HBO took uh, Gone with the Wind um, off of their yeah. servers yeah. for a little bit? And they're going to put it uh, back up with a disclaimer about um, the you know like racial issues that are tri- involved trigger in the warning. film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think about that? Because I saw I that didn't, it, the, yeah. the AV Club uh, titled their news story on it, HBO removes Confederate monument, which was clever. <laughs> mm, <laughs> right. Mm. Um, but I think, well, what's your thought? Well, first of all, I haven't seen Gone with the Wind since I was a kid, so yeah, I don't even know. know, right? So I'm literally going off of secondhand, um, like, attestations of what this film is about. Like, I, I don't remember anything. You want to know something kind of funny and embarrassing? As a child, I did a report in third grade, and I went as Rhett Butler, and I put coffee grounds on my face to look like Clark Gable when he was playing the character. I didn't go as Clark Gable. I went as Rhett Butler. Um <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, I think it was like one of my mom's favorite movies when she was a kid or some shit like that. But yeah, I went there and I put like coffee grounds on my face so I could have like stubble and shit like that so I could look like an adult. So, But I know nothing. Like that's my attachment to Gone with the Wind is that and that like it's one of the greatest films ever made, blah, blah, blah. Um, I just don't know enough about it to be able to actually substantively comment. But now the larger issue is what do I think about media monuments, right? Like the visual image. Um... That's really interesting, and I think I need to think about it more because I don't know if I have a formed opinion on it because I think that there's a lot of stuff there to explore because they serve a different purpose, right? Film film to me, like if we're going to talk about that illocutionary effect, and then maybe we could even talk about the perlocutionary uh, or, or the illocutionary kind of speech and then the, the perlocutionary effect. Like what, what does film do in its operational role that is qualitatively different or distinct from a monument in the middle of a city square? Or yeah, do they exactly. have a similar function? Um, like, should should films like fucking Griffith's Birth of a Nation only be uh, held in, like, some sort of, like, online museum archive that you access with a warning that's like, know that this is an historical film that is meant to simply 
you know, tell us the the past uh, or like the, the some ideas about the racial past of a great and profound filmmaker, like or whatever it would be. Like, I don't really know. That's actually an interesting point. Do you have some more formed thoughts on this? Yeah, just a little bit. I mean, I think you got exactly on the right path. There's some sense in which I think, especially historically, like renowned films do have somewhat of a similar role as these monuments and statues do, but also an important distinction with them as well. And so if you imagine like you're watching AFI's 100 Best Films or whatever um, and Gone with the Wind comes up, it would be strange to celebrate the film as a great artistic American artistic achievement and not mention the uh, racial issues at the center of the film, right? That would be strange to do, to just like speak to its technical expertise or whatever. And that's it, as if even like the narrative itself is purely techne. There's no sort of right. other kinds of content involved in it whatsoever. That would be weird, right? But I also think that just queuing up a movie on HBO Go is not the same thing as celebrating a historical monument. And so I don't know that it's necessary to sort of prime somebody um, with some, you know, like normative content before a film, a trigger warning, basically, um, mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, I don't know that it's necessary when you're queuing up a movie on a server. Like, I don't think it would be, I think it'd be weird if they, they haven't done that. They haven't sort of banned films, right? That would, I think, definitely be too much. Um, but if they were to go so far as to sort of tear down Gone with the Wind or Birth of a Nation or something like that, that seems like unnecessary because those films are not sort of dealt with. They require an interpretive act by the viewer, right? Mm. There's some, um, it's, it's primed for interpretation, right? It's not, you can't just interpret it as anything, but there's a plurality of interpretations that you can delve into and deal with this film, right? And so you can engage in this creative watching. And that seems to be yeah. kind of stifled a bit when you have these trigger warnings. But, but if you are viewing them as monuments, like you've run a class on great historical films, it would be very strange not to talk about those issues with the film, right? Because you're then you're seeing it as a cultural sig- a signifier, right? It's going to have yeah. that that sense to it. And so you would need to talk about it in that sense, but not probably not if you're viewing it at home through, you know, your Roku or whatever. Yeah, I was thinking like is there something fundamentally different about the cinematic language that is distinct and unique that operates quite differently because it has a sort of more multifarious set of capacities than uh, a statue in a city square that is placed there to be revered and to reinforce certain myths. But then at the same time, is there something about the mediatized image that also similarly operates that way? And I wonder if I could analogously put myself in the position, just for a second, of the preserver of the statue, but analogously in the media form. So I'm the preserver of Gone with the Wind, right? And my argument is, um, hypothetically, my argument is that we need to keep it because it's actually part of a long, ongoing tradition of films and of engagement with mediatized images that also um, can critique it and construct it. Like, I think it's very rare that you watch Gone with the Wind now and you don't immediately recognize that there are problematic uh, racial elements in it, right? Um, unless you're somebody that just is drinking the Kool-Aid and you celebrate that shit and, or you just like don't pay attention to it. And then if you don't pay attention to it, then it might seep in there ideologically and that might be problematic too, right? Because it might just enforce and then reinforce certain biases, prejudices that we don't want um, in, a, in a pluralistic society. And so what I wonder is, is, is like what would, what would my perspective be on that? Because I would say, and I can only think of this in a uh, in a in a – and an example that I'm more familiar with, which is the Western, the classic Western. 
And the classic Western is definitely problematic, right? The Native American is always viewed as uh, a savage, as somehow um, being part of the wild that needs to be tamed by the civilized Western man that is moving westward, right? Um, that is that is trying to build towns and that is trying to build their homesteads and things like that. And so the classic Western generally depicts Native Americans in very problematic ways, which is why you get really interesting inversions of that in what are called sometimes like post-Westerns um, or, uh, or constructive uh, – or no, wait, we're not constructivists. What are they called? Oh, fuck. I forgot the name. Revisionist Western. Thank you. So mm-hmm. it's either um, a post-Western or a revisionist Westerns where they actually they, – they, um, they contest, if you will, the typical classic Western narrative because they recognize that it's a myth. It's a particular myth that is mm-hmm. re- reinforcing a certain type of um, American colonialist supremacist mentality. But then the question is, is, so should I not watch Searchers and then only watch Django? Or only watch Dances with Wolves or only whatever, you know? Like, should you only watch Unforgiven, you know? Like these revisionist westerns that are intentionally, Logan, that are intentionally commenting on the classic western form but contesting it by speaking from different voices, by by challenging things um, that were assumed under that particular myth. And then here's the question. Could we not do something similar with statues? Or is there something about the mediatized images? Is there something about the cinematic language that allows for the, the maintenance of that through line from keeping the classic Western in your online digital library while also showing it alongside, you know, the revisionists and the kind of like more revolutionary Westerns that will challenge that, the post-Westerns? Um, is there something that is different about that that allows for a more fruitful and constructive relation between those two that doesn't offend or that doesn't not just offend for offense sake but that isn't like reinforcing problematic historical ideals and myths yeah i think that's a really good point i mean i do think that some of the things we talked about earlier like maybe um having monuments not of sort of historically renowned figures but of regular people who were oppressed or enslaved or in some sense um destroyed by the by the cultural system um is a way of sort of doing the revisionist Western, right? Um, With monuments and statues. And so that might be a way of doing it. I know that um, there's a statue in my town of um, the original um, suffragettes in the city from the uh, 1910s. And I think it's the the coolest statue that's here. And I always um, look at it and and read over the plaque when I'm walking by there uh, because it's it's definitely the, the most badass looking one. Uh, it's very broke with like full on action sequence, which all statues should be. No more standing up straight. Come on, Michelangelo. <laughs> um, so yeah, that certainly I think would would play a different role and do something similar to like the the, the, the originalist westerns do. But I don't know how do you do you like should HBO and Amazon when you when you select a John Wayne movie do they go oh you should also watch Unforgiven? <laughs> that seems right. even even more like. Um, it seems even worse than the trigger warning in the sense of like priming you for what you're supposed to think. Yeah, and it's Rather hard than... because for someone like for someone like me, I'm already predisposed to thinking that way because I'm invested in that. So I think similarly, is there I don't know if there is. Is there a hypothetical argument for somebody who's like some sort of like statue historian that's like, "No, no, no, but we already do that with statues too." Right? Like we know that there's a problematic past, but we're looking at Colston. Now the problem is is 
like in relation to like you know recent understandings of um, of prejudice and colonialism and and stuff like that. So we understand the larger picture. The problem is is that they serve very different functions. Like we've already talked about societally, mm-hmm. right? Like the monument isn't a communicative piece uh, like a film is. Um, it's it's. But here's the thing. I don't want to say that there's. I was going to say it's embedded in particular like. Uh, power structures but film is too it just takes place at like maybe a more like micro mediatized level i don't know ma'am this is a really interesting i need to think through this more i think yeah i mean i think what you're getting to is the, the differences in context right there's really only um a single kind of context that monuments and statues work and it's a public one that you see and that represents something about the the nature of the locale right it says something yeah. about what this place is about uh now that can be ambiguous right but that's Whatever it is, it's going to be that. Whereas films have an individual role when you just watch them by yourself. They have a social role when they're recognized as great films or as terrible films or as racist films, but also great. Um, And so there's a very different context. And it would seem to me that the context should play a big role in how we're thinking about how to treat them. Such that it doesn't seem like watching it at home um, is it going to be the same thing as viewing a statue in the public square around everybody else in the town. Whereas... If you're talking about it in a classroom, uh, about you're talking about great films um, with a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds, you would need to bring up those issues and talk about them and then interpret the film as a text through those through that lens. Right. Um, very yeah. purposefully. Uh, otherwise, you'd be doing sort of a disservice in some sense um, to the sort of educational or normative force of when you, sell, when you tell a student this is a great film, you're you're sort of making it a statue. You're making it a monument in front of them and telling them figure out what's great about it. Well, you're supposed to help them figure that out. And so part of that's going to be <laughs> right. maybe this film isn't all that great when it comes down to it. Maybe it has lots of racist content, but technically is great. And we have to talk about how do we deal with films that are like that. Um, so all those discussions, I think, would have to be had to have responsibly dealt with that cultural monument of film. Do you think that there's something about the platform by which the statue or by which the film is accessed makes it different. So like in the public square, that's common space, right? When you go onto Netflix, you're going onto your individual private account. This is an act of individual engagement and access, um, and you choose to watch the film. So the question seems to really ultimately come down to is should we purge our society of all ability to access problematic information? Because we wouldn't then think, well, should we then, or do we think that we should burn the books that we don't like because, um, you know, there are racist elements in the books, right? And we generally think, no, we should keep them. They're expressions of, uh, of free speech. Um, they are, um, you, can, you can choose to engage with them or not. You can put those trigger warnings on them. You can use them in educational settings, etc. But when it's in the public sphere, like, what, like what, would you have to put like a trigger warning? Like, hey, if you turn right around this corner, we're just letting you know there's a statue of a fucking slave trader here. You know? Like, I think that's the kind of equivalence there. But then what happens is you take the public sphere and you privatize it. It doesn't become common property anymore. There's no mm-hmm. sort of enforcement, if you will, of the commonality of everybody's right to not be excluded from that area. Whereas when you're talking about private consumption, going into a movie theater or going into your Netflix account or whatever your streaming service is, it's a little bit of a different relation. It's a different property relation too, which then also has a different sort of act of enforcement, but also um, different means of access to the object in question. So is that is that something that's different? Like does that does that m- 
Does that make sense? Like, is that why, is that an argument for why you should not just simply get rid of Gone with the Wind? But because it's, it's a different property relation. Yeah, I mean, you don't, I don't, I don't think you want to um, create this sense that like there's this purely private sphere where you just engage in satisfying your own uh, chosen ends, and that should be free from any sort of public criticism or whatever. Right? That seems definitely wrong. But then I think a lot of this points to the idea that the different media forms have different norms uh, around these issues, right? When it comes to like oil on canvas, we don't have much of a problem with anything. I mean, I guess still a lot of, you know, prudes still like don't want to have, you know, boobs in kids' textbooks, which is ridiculous. But they're but they're but, in textbooks and they're in museums. They're not in city squares, except for like, you know, like there are statues and stuff like that in yeah, there, Europe. There's some public have, art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But generally speaking, the, it's always like acceptable, right? Like Yeah, I mean, we, we don't tend to think that there's anything, even like, if you go see a painting by Caravaggio, maybe the, the plaque next to it will mention something about the fact that he was a fucking psychopathic murderer. <laughs> but it's not going to be in like a, like in a, therefore you should dislike this painting sense. Clearly he's a master, right? It has no effect on, it maybe just makes it more interesting, the fact that he was a psychopathic murderer, right? Um, and so that doesn't affect us. And even with books, we've gotten to the point now where we don't really... Um, care about that stuff, and certainly there's lots of uh, you know famous texts that have a problematic content that we're mostly okay with, and there's still some you know banned book controversies and stuff like that. But it's nowhere where I think where it used to be. And music used to be the big one, right? PMRC and stuff in the '90s, where there was this thought that if you had music with problematic content, however you define that, usually by conservatives, then that would sort of instigate. Um, uh, kids towards violence and apathy and self-destruction and therefore you have to in some sense censor it um, but then we've kind of gotten away from that too like no one really like, Tipper Gore doesn't have any sort of role in this shit anymore right so now it seems like movies is sort of the last bastion at least for now where we still think there's some like tie-in towards from both conservative and from you know uh, sometimes more identitarian uh, liberal sides about thinking about how films can sort of instigate people towards stuff and you don't want to sort of let them watch it nakedly. In well, some films sense. are regulated too, right? They've got a rating system. So do you Much think more. that? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that? I mean, they're already regulated. So do you think that that it would be beneficial to take films that have, like, so rather than just sex, violence, and language as the criteria for the rating system, you also include like. Uh, colonialism or some shit like that you know so you not you broaden... want the fucking government in control of that. <laughs> like, yeah i feel like we've made progress in getting away from that with music and with literature and with and with paintings and arts um it seems like we'd be going backwards yeah. by putting extra uh restricted content warnings on stuff briefly but what do you think mean that what... we just that does not mean that there's just purely individualist naked sphere where you engage in your private ends um, satisfying and that that's where you watch movies or whatever. And that's it. Right. Um, yeah. That's not the, the answer. It's sort of libertarian reason for not wanting content warnings. That's not what the, do you th the right answer. What do you think about removing the statues and placing them in museums? And then you have like plaques that explain the history, not just of the person, but also the demonstrations against the statue that led to the statue being removed. What do you think about that? I mean, you know what's way more badass than that? When you search for Edward Colson's statue on Google Maps and it shows a river. <laughs> like that's that's a way more badass museum piece. Because then yeah, like... 
Yeah. You have to think about why the fuck is that in the river? Like you're going to care way more about finding out why something's in the river than finding out why it's in a museum. So if that's the point, then just throw them all into the river. <laughs> or at least into other spaces where it's hard to retrieve them. Yeah. Throw them in a volcano for that'll be badass. Why is there a barnacle on Edward Colston in this museum, Mom? <laughs> well, in 2020, <laughs> people had enough of his shit and they threw him in. Yeah. Like if you open up a textbook and it had a picture of a statue like covered in a bunch of shit underwater, you're going to be like, I got to find out why this happened rather than just seeing it on a museum, a field trip when you're bored out well, of your mind. The interesting thing, too, is we're still speaking in 20th century language. I mean, we got to be real, man. 21st century, everything is going to be digitized. What is education? What is what are relations going to be like when we have like fucking contact lenses, like AR contact lenses that – Look, we can just walk through a space and there's a fucking QR code or some shit like that that basically just tells us about the history of that area and like, oh, fucking there was a massacre here. And like, that's what's coming, right? So Yeah, where's my Tupac hologram in LA? (laughs) I mean, I'm being a little bit like techno-utopian or maybe not utopian, techno-futuristic. But it's true though that like – I think a lot of the solutions like, oh, well, we could just put them in a museum or they need to be out in the public square really kind of actually denies where history is going, which is digitization, datafication. So the question is, is is there a way to actually like approach this subject? And we don't have time to get into this now because this would be something for a, a whole different other podcast to approach this subject on the cusp of like that historical epochal shift, right? And And whether like how do we – how do we do that? Does that mean that there's like a QR code on the statue and you walk by them and it and it does that? Or is there like – do you remove all of them and place them in a museum or do you just remove all of them, throw them in the ocean and then you just have like holograms where you can like flip through them as you walk by some hall of remembrance or something like that? Like like how are we going to actually engage with icons in the future? I think it's going to be very different than the way that we've engaged with them for the past century and that I think right now in this like weird interregnum period that we're currently engaging with them. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of skeptical about that personally. I kind of think that like in the same way independent bookstores can in some sense thrive while Barnes & Noble goes out of business because there's this kind of like conservative, not conservative in a bad way, desire for physical books amongst like hipsters and stuff like that, right? I do think that probably physical statues and monuments are going to remain even when everything else becomes digitized in a sense of because because statues of the sort of desire and affection for statues and monuments is very conservative especially in in america um people are going to want those physical remembrances um to look back on and so i i I think that's probably not going to happen although there may also be like an addendum to that all these digital things uh it'll be it'll be augmented reality where it'll be like a, a digital layer on top of it or alongside it or something like that infused with it somehow yeah, so you can run up to the statue of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and block his skyhook. <laughs> I am a god. I am a basketball <laughs> god. I did what only one other human ever could ever do. <laughs> um, okay, real quick. I have to give you – we'll end this segment now, but I have to give you the, the a crazy iconoclastic story that I told yeah, you about. Yeah, the story about your dad, yeah. Okay, so my dad uh, – joined a church that was a very, very, very reformed church. And for people out there that don't know, this comes out of like Luther and particularly Calvin, um, 
uh, tradition, there's this confession called the London Baptist Confession from 1689 that is basically a modification of the Westminster Confession, main difference being how they view baptism, okay? That's just background. You don't really need to know too much about that. But Protestants have a long history of iconoclasm, right? Like basically viewing any icon as being idolatrous. So my dad, when he first went to this church, he actually had a little bit of a problem with them because he felt that they were kind of like up their own ass and smelling their own farts with their iconoclasm kind of thing. Um, <laughs> Because one guy told a story about a former preacher that he knew, like that was a part of the same network of these Reformed Baptist churches, that wouldn't even allow crosses in their church. And he told this story about how like they were kind of joking. I, I can't even remember. It was like he would like walk into a sanctuary and if there was a cross like in the background, he'd yell out timber, like timber, like because that motherfucker was coming <laughs> down. And I thought that was the craziest most ridiculous thing at the time. And my it's dad had a problem. though. It is kind of badass. <laughs> See, and of course my dad had a problem with it because it was too blatant maybe. But um, but still, <laughs> it was like it was like so fucking iconoclastic that you can't even have a cross in your sanctuary. And I was like, that is fucking, that's going for it, you know? Yeah, that's nuts, man. I mean, I'm, right. I'm just wondering like words or symbols? Like do you not use names? Names or symbols? Yeah. Exactly. They don't understand. Uh, There's some philosophy of language. Stuff semiotics. Really yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. But then. Like, can, can you can you picture Jesus in your mind or is that an idol? Wait, can you say the word God is good or is that. No, you got to go into negative theology now. You can't say what God is because then you're idol. <laughs> yeah, you're ascribing you're properties to a thing. That's idolatry. Fuck, man. I know. Actually, I love to use that argument with my dad sometimes um, just to frustrate him. But The negative yeah. theology stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or just to basically talk about how a lot of theology is just idolatrous anyway, and he doesn't quite get what I'm saying, but I'm like, yeah, dude, you're turning God into a linguistic idol, an icon. Sorry. Actually, I don't do that anymore because I'm not an asshole. <laughs> but I did at one point in my life. <laughs> I just can't wait to see another cross and just go, Timber! Timber! <laughs> Especially as you're in the South, you just cruise through the South, just start screaming it out your car window. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the Scandinavian black metal bands could have taken a lesson. Just say Timber. Don't burn the fucking thing down. Yeah, dude. That would be actually a cool name for a band, wouldn't it? Timber. And then Timber you can exclamation have, mark. Yeah, and then you have this ex, uh, you have this explanation for why you're called Timber. It's, it's just like, a cross with three lines behind it as it's falling down. <laughs> That's actually pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, trademarked, by the way, motherfuckers. Don't steal that shit. Yeah, Christian Death has a new album coming out already with that on it. Yeah, yeah, there it is. All right, so should we move to the sticky leaves? Yeah, let's do it. So the sticky leaves segment of the show is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's bringing us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So, Austin, what's doing it for you this week? Well, remember how a few weeks back maybe months back i was talking about the joys of like building stuff with my hands Mm -hmm. this isn't going to be my sticky leaves but i just had to say it because it's part of my sticky leaves because it's one of the things that's bringing me joy i built a desk in my new apartment i moved into a new house and uh i've got a huge room and i've got this big space and i built a desk and i fucking love it and i just wanted to kind of it's a follow-up to a previous sticky leaves because again i just love working with my hands so yeah everybody elaborate on build uh i got wood and I cut it to size, and I stained the wood. Damn, dude. 
put it together, screwed it all together, and then I've decorated it, and I stained it this really cool, it's called antique blue. It's like this funky light kind of sky blue, but the grain of the wood is still underneath it because it's just a stain rather than a paint. So it looks pretty rad. But then I've slapped like surf stickers and shit like that all over it. So it's super beachy looking. It looks like, you ever been to Wahoo's Fish Tacos? Yeah, with it you. Looks like, it looks like Wahoo's Fish Tacos. Oh yeah, <laughs> duh. It's like my favorite restaurant. <laughs> it looks like Wahoo's, how there's like just fucking stickers slapped all over it. And um, it's even that, that blue color. I didn't realize it actually until afterwards, but the blue color is kind of similar to what they use in their decor. <laughs> Yeah, but um, and then of course up the legs, the legs of the desk too. I've got stickers on there, and I just need to get more stickers. I need to now it's all surf stickers, which are cool, but I need to get like some punk punk music stickers and shit like that. But I love it, so I built a desk. Uh, I love doing shit like that, so that's that. But that's not my real sticky leaves. That's just a follow up. My real sticky leaves, and I figured we could talk about this is um. Two albums that I've been listening to a lot of. One that's not new, but I just wanted to share it because it's an Australian band that I really kind of have been enjoying. They're called Sticky Fingers. It's kind of like just chill, beachy, kind of like I hate to even use this comparison because people shit so much on this band. I know, but kind of like sublimey kind of shit. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's just like chill. You can't be easy. from California and really hate Sublime. Come on. I know. I don't, but so many other people do. So I'm putting that disclaimer out there. This is basically. This is the uh, Sydney, Australia version of that type of genre, right? So, um, but they're called Sticky Fingers. Uh, Are they named after the Rolling Stones album? I have no no idea. Yeah, I I don't know if it's that deep. It's probably some sort of like crude teenage joke. I don't know. Mm. I don't know what it is. But well, it I mean, be. I think it was with Rolling Stones too. Oh, was it? Eh, then maybe it is. Yeah, that's the one with Mick Jagger's crotch on it. I think. I think it's Mick Jagger. Is it? See, here's the thing, though. So I'm not like – like you are all up in like uh, the music blogs and you know like – like obviously particularly with the music that you like more than anything. But like I don't really follow like music websites or anything like that. So I don't really know what's coming out except sometimes like older punk bands that like I used to listen to. Like I knew Melancholin had a new album. Lagwagon had a new album. And you know – and that's great. I mean because it's just the old standbys. You know what you're going to get when you find out that fucking Lagwagon is going to be releasing their 13th album or whatever. They don't really evolve much. Like they may get a little tighter. The vocals may be stronger. Lyrics may be topical, whatever. But it's you know what you're getting, right? Mm-hmm. But like I'm not really up on current music. Like what's hot? What's cutting edge? What's new? What's rich? That's just not really my thing um, so much. But I do love the new Run the Jewels album. And I oh, did God, think yeah. that we could talk about that for a second. And I know you love it too. So this could be like a joint sticky uh, enjoyment. But yeah, what do you think, dude? Oh, yeah. Well, you talk about it first. I just fucking love it. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I mean, so here's the thing that was interesting because it was right. They released it right after Killer Mike gave that speech in Atlanta like about going home and mobilizing and organizing organizing and mobilizing and a lot of people gave him shit because they felt like he was playing too much into the like the he wasn't being a cab enough like he wasn't being all cops are, <laughs> are bastards enough right he was kind of like no 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 cops are people too they got a job to do we could just have good cops kind of thing so people didn't like that and they felt that he was kind of in some ways minimizing if you will the radicality of um, rioting and looting by sort of like delegitimizing it by saying go home and organize and use the electoral system. So I got the critique. Yeah. And I actually agree with the critique in some ways. Right. But I also kind of understand where he's coming from as well. I think that there's validity on, on both sides. Um, yeah, I context actually made a- matters, right? When it's a person who's regularly been on the side, uh, on the right side um, for his entire life and fights um, every day for that side, it, him telling people to 
to calm down for a minute is different than like the police chief doing it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it is. It is different. Um, and so, so that happened. And then what was it like June 4th or whatever, they dropped the album and mm. it was just taking, putting everything into context, like the release of this album in this historical moment, it almost felt in some ways like the soundtrack or a soundtrack, one of the soundtracks, um, to the moment in so many ways because of the literal references to I Can't Breathe on the album to the screenshot that you showed me of the lyrics. We're talking about how the news is kind of feeding us fear, right? To the track that I told you that I really liked where it's LP saying, you know, I, I can't remember the exact lyrics, but it's something like, I grew up, I, all I wanted was people to think that I was smart, but now I know that I really should have just like functioned about the issues of the heart or something along those lines. Um, and how it's about like cultivating like the inner the inner self rather than just trying to get praise from other people for being a smart person right mm-hmm. um building up that 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 heart and i was like oh so there was so much in the album content wise that i thought was so fucking pertinent to the moment that it just feels like the soundtrack to at least this month you know like 100% it feels like that to me as as a as a white boy in sydney australia who's not really a hip hop head that's how it feels to me i don't know yeah, dude. I mean, it's, it kind of reminds me of like, remember when um, To Pimp a Butterfly came out? Pretty, it was a, a, a bit before the Ferguson protest and the Michael Brown thing. But uh, the song All Right became kind of an anthem for the Ferguson protest. It was mm. Ferguson, right? It sucks that I, it could be several different uh, protests over, you know, police killings. But, but yes, I think the Ferg- it was that one. Ferg- Ferguson was the big one, yeah, with, with yeah. That, that erupted around that. I don't remember the, the relation to the album, but yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, the, the song All Right became kind of an anthem among protests. There's a bunch of videos online of people chanting the song mm. um, during the protests. And yeah, I mean, this this album doesn't have like the necessarily the chant-worthy song um, mm. for people to, to sing during the protests. And I do wonder, I mean, it, it's almost... You can't really predict these things because they're spontaneous when something mm-hmm. becomes an anthem or becomes historically important like a work of art does during um, some time of social upheaval. But uh, it's certainly the the priors are there for it, right? Like it's set up mm. to be that way. It's just it's so incredible that it came out like the week of those protests starting. And yeah, when on, on the song Walking in the Snow, when um, Killer Mike says, I can't breathe, then the way he says it as if he's being choked, that's yeah. just like some chills man i just got chills right now you saying it yeah 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 and then the the last line or one of the last lines in that song he says uh and just pulled it up here so i can read it um i'm reading chomsky i read bukowski i'm laying low for a week i said something on behalf of my people and i popped up in WikiLeaks. thank god that i'm covered the devil comes smothered and you know that evil don't sleep dick gregory told me a couple of secrets before he laid down in his grave all of us served the same masters all of us nothing but slaves never mm. forgetting the story of jesus the hero was killed by the state oh yeah that's the one yeah i love that yeah, yeah i was actually great. yesterday i was listening to the album again and that line caught me yeah 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 that's great and then doesn't lp come in right after that and say something kind of sick um i'm not sure I can't remember. It, whatever, man. I, I've I've listened to the album now maybe a handful of times, and um, it's just it's it's great. I so I, we had a, a big protest here, right? Um, it was a vigil for George Floyd, but then also um, recontextualized for Black struggles here in Australia, which are 
primarily related around um, indigenous struggles. So I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, but actually the same term black rights is used here for indigenous peoples, right, Um, who were considered black here. Um, So it's not so much uh, the African immigrant, it's more of indigenous uh, struggles. But nevertheless, there's a joint, um, uh, this was a joint event. And I was listening to the soundtrack on my way to the event, and it just felt like, like I, like I wouldn't have wanted to be that fucking dumbass white kid that tries to take over the protest. But it felt like, <laughs> it felt like even though no one was actually all listening to the music, it felt like everyone was listening to the music to me. Does that make sense? Like, just because I, I'm obviously I'm projecting because it was my own personal inner conscious. Uh, experience, but it felt like everybody was united by a theme. There was like a universal theme, and it felt like the music, the song, was somehow communicating at that almost telepathic level, um, and that it was like spread across, and that it just felt like, even though it wasn't actually being outwardly used as an anthem, it felt like it was um, uh, an anthem underneath, like an unconscious anthem of the spirit of the protest. If that makes any sense, I know that's a little like hippy dippy and shit, but that's how it felt to me. And it made me want to a couple of times, like just be like, fuck, I wish this were just blasting right now. And everybody could just, (laughs) you know, like everyone could just vibe out to this right now. Well, you know, I I think you're right that the the sort of theme uh, or the album has this sort of thematic parallel with the protests. And so you think about like some of the the great, like politically um, oriented uh, leftist groups like Rage Against the Machine or Fugazi or whatever, right? Um, what's usually lacking in those groups, like they have this really sharp, edgy, aggressive political tone, right? But then they're not joyous, mm-hmm. usually, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're usually pretty cynical, um, and they don't they don't usually talk about sort of what life would be like after the revolution, right? It's just about instigating the revolution, kind of a mm-hmm. thing, right? Uh, and that's that's great. Like I mean, you know, killing in the name is always going to have uh, resonance um, as long as that's a reality. In the well, it's kind right? of a fuck you. It's that blatant thing. It's that attitude. Yeah. It's it's the fuck he, you. He says that fifty million times in that song. Yeah, I mean, yeah. some of fuck those. Fuck you! I won't those, do what you tell me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some of those that uh, run forces are the same that burn crosses. I mean, it's a fantastic yeah. line, and it's just still you know resonates today. But Run the Jewels has this unique feature where, and it mm. kind of plays between Killer Mike and LP, where they have this you know. Um, this aggressive uh, political anti-establishment kind of tone, but then also it's incredibly joyous. And that comes a lot from from LP, but also from Killer Mike, right? As, as being like, it's about friendship and brotherhood mm. and hanging out and smoking weed, right? Yeah. Um, and being there for each other and caring about one another and wanting a better world so you can be with one another, right? So like it kind of prefigures what would be what would happen after the revolution, and that the, these protests have that same kind of joyous sense to it. You see all the videos of people dancing to music in the streets, and we even talked about how even the taking down of statues, which would seem to be the most like aggressive and you know quote unquote violent aggro behavior, is also kind of joyous in a sense and liberatory. And Brother Jules just has that thematic uh, combination to it that's pretty rare, because they're calling for a better world. Right? They're not saying simply destroy, destroy, fuck you. Right? Now, that better world, it's very, it's very, that better world is viewed as a fuck you from the perspective of power because, in a way, it is. But there's a constructive project. There's something beautiful about it because it's, 
It's almost like it's tasted the celestial kingdom and it just wants to realize it. It wants to make it materialize, right? And that's why there's something theological, there's something um, speculative, I think, in all of this. I mean, I just can't get away from seeing the theological everywhere. But if you don't like that phrasing, there's something speculative, right? There's something um, futural, right? That it's that it's it's seen the future. It's kind of like that fucking famous MLK quote of you know, been to the mountaintop. He's seen it, right? And and then it's like, but we just gotta fucking get there, right? We gotta do it. And that's what you kind of see in these protests that are saying no, fuck you. Um, but at the same time. Fuck you, because we need to build a true universal world. And that's that what I was talking about, like Zizek and Hegel earlier in the concrete universal. Black Lives Matter essentially is that call for a true universal, a true universality, a true plurality, right? Not one that is issuing from a regionally particular narrative that is just trying to inflate itself to the status of a universal, the false universal. No, this is the true universal, the universal that issues from the earth. There's a punk band, I can't remember what they're called right now for some reason, their name has slipped my mind, but they say, um, lower the flags and raise up the earth. Um, and then I can't remember the next line. Uh, but, yeah, but yeah, lower the flags, raise up the earth. I think they're called... Um, uh, strike anywhere yeah that's them strike anywhere yeah yeah um and i always loved that idea because to me that's a really sort of like post-colonial anthem as well it's forget the imagined communities that we have that are symbolized by these flags that carve us up and that orient us in particular ways in the globe right lower that shit and let's have a you raise up the earth. It's like it comes from life. It's this earthen void universalism almost, right? Uh, it's this universalism that issues from from the bottom rather than being imposed from the top. And, I, and that's there in this album. That's there in the Black Lives Matter movement. That's there in any genuine liberatory and emancipatory political project or call. That's it. It's calling for a better world, right? The question, of course, is how to build that and, and whatnot, which becomes sticky, but... But yeah, that's it. And that's why I think the album is so celebratory. And it does have that joy that is lacking, I think, in like just the simple fuck you, I won't do what you tell me of Rage. Which, by the way, Zach De La Rocha is actually on the RTJ4 album. Yeah, he's on several other albums. Oh, is he? That, cool. that, that lost Zach De La Rocha album, man, that never came out. It's going to be on the, the, uh, the master list of great lost albums. It, one day it'll maybe come out. <laughs> But yeah, I think you're right. I, I can't help but thinking that the whole like lower the flag, uh, raise up the earth is going to have um, a picture of a marijuana leaf next because that comes from the earth too, dude. <laughs> and that's what RTJ is about. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, I need a hookup in Sydney. So I'll holla at your boy. <laughs> All right. So we should end it there. Sweet. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in. It was a long episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to tweet at us, owls underscore at underscore Don. You can email us, owls at donpodcast at gmail.com. Please go to patreon.com slash owls at Don, and uh, you can support us that way. Um, remember, there's a poll up right now. Um, I think that's pretty much it, unless there's anything I'm forgetting. Anything else we should say, T-Roy? I just wish we could end with those uh, strings and brass from 
that song, A Few Words from the Firing Squad, the last song on the RTJ4. Ah, uh, yes. That shit is epic. Well, but, people, but, you know, people we can have our insert own epic it. Send-off, you know? Yeah, we have our own epic send-off. And if people want, they can, they can like, imagine that under, playing, like, underneath our Just epic send-off. Just play them both at the same time like he used to do with, like, two CDs playing at the same time. <laughs> we had to, you had to line up um, Wizard of Oz and Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon together. That's right. Do it. Those are the good old days. All right, brother. I think that's it. Unless there's anything you want to say. Just one more thing, dude. What's that? Das Vidani, Amerikanski. Yeah.